Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, thank you also for being with us. So, kid, I grew up in an area that was um, well-to-do. My family was very middle class, but my parents wanted in on this tax base. And as a result, I went to school and played basketball and kids sports with, with people who were well-to-do. And in particular, became friends with this um, kid in the youth league basketball team. And one time, his family took me as their guest to this very exclusive club. And because it was exclusive, people were treated um, with great service. Your wish is my command. And that's what you got for paying the dues you did. Well, I was treated that way. I was treated as someone from money when, in fact, we were very middle class. Why was I treated that way? Well, these people were with me, and, and so they, they lumped us together. And so I, I received really favor that I didn't pay for or necessarily uh, deserve in their, in their system. Well, I want to suggest to you, as, as much as that was true in that experience in that little exclusive country club, that it's infinitely more true in our relationship with God. There is something that comes when the Lord is with you or with us. And I want to talk about that particularly today. So if you have a Bible, if you'd open it to Roman, uh, 1 Samuel 18, we're going to go all the way through this chapter wrestling with the question, what happens when the Lord is with you? What happens when the Lord is with us? So as you're turning there, we are in a series called Reliant. It's focused on our reliance on God because Israel was learning that lesson and, and maybe even failing at it. Um, Israel had been a loose federation of states, and they're moving to a monarchy. And it was driven by the, the people's misplaced security. They thought, you know, if we have a king, we'll be okay. And the prophet Samuel, speaking for God, said, you know, that's probably not a good idea. But they wanted one anyway. At some point, God says, I'm going to give you your answer. I'm going to answer your quest. So you, that ultimately, you know, I'm the king you need. And so the first king was anointed. This guy by the name of Saul, he was a head taller, he was handsome, and, and Israel thought, this is our guy. And when Saul was anointed, the, the wording was really particular, you're a prince, you're a ruler. He didn't use the word, Samuel didn't use the word for king, because Saul, you don't have ultimate autonomy here, you don't have ultimate authority. Well, Saul missed that, and he disobeyed God blatantly in a couple of times, different occasions. And Samuel, speaking for God, said, I, I'm done, we're moving on. Second king was anointed. His name was David. And last week we saw David stand up to the Philistine champion Goliath and drop him with a stone and a sling. And so we're, we're in this quandary right now, and yes, even a mess. Israel has a sitting king. His name is Saul. And they have a king in waiting. His name is David. He's been anointed. And how that's going to play out? Well, we'll stick with us. We'll figure that out. And we're stepping into that here now in 1 Samuel 18. Verse 1 says this, this, says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. They have him with us. Jonathan is Saul's son. He is next in line for the throne. But he has committed himself to David. He understands David is going to be the next king. And Jonathan loved him, David, as himself. Saul took him, David, that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Saul took all the valiant warriors to himself. And so this is part of his bringing David into his house. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 28, when Samuel announced to Saul that 
uh, the kingdom taken from you. He said it's a neighbor. And Saul didn't realize he's fulfilling that prophecy by bringing David into his house. Back to Jonathan, verses 3 and 4. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe. This is symbolic, significant of conferring royalty on David. The robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor. Again, remember Jonathan had state-of-the-art stuff. Most of Israel didn't, including his sword and his bow and his belt. You know, for a minute, I want to talk about this speaks to the power of relationship in the community of God. Jonathan would risk his life in his father's anger to protect David. Jonathan understood, I'm giving up my place as king so David can fulfill God's call. When Jonathan dies in battle, David grieves. He really grieves. And after Jonathan dies, David made some of his biggest mistakes. And I think he never, part of the reason I think is he never replaced Jonathan. He never replaced that man in his life who loved him and could hold him accountable. I grew up in a family where my dad was angry, and I didn't have really a good model for love. As a student, I came to faith, got involved in the campus ministry, and I learned about love through male friendships. I, I was just amazed at the, the power they could have in my life. And I didn't get married until I was 33. And the degree to which I have been successful or loved well in marriage and as a father, I think it's traced to those those friendships, I began to understand unconditional love. It was modeled to me. My observation after 35 years in ministry, 37, is that people who continue walking with God are deeply connected to others. And so as you're attending here, I want to invite you to, to find a place to get connected. Uh, maybe it's on the worship team. There's a camaraderie among these people. Maybe it's in student ministry. There's a camaraderie among those people who work in student ministry. Children's ministry, same deal. We have a number of small groups. We'd love to talk to you about that. For many people, the highlight of their week is the, the week they get together, the night they get together with their small group. We have a men's ministry that meets on Saturday, a, a women's ministry that meets on Tuesday night. God's a relational God. It wouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised that he calls us to be relational people. The phrase one another is used 100 times in the New Testament. 59 times, it's how we're to relate or not relate with one another. God places a high value on relationship. Verse 5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. And we've talked about we've got a, a sitting king and a king in waiting. And we said at some point it's going to get messy. It turns right here, starting in verse 6. Things get rough. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine, that being Goliath, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, David has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. Now that shouldn't be a big deal, should it? I mean, they're, they're both fighting for the name and reputation of God. They're both fighting to free the promised land of oppression of the Philistines. This shouldn't be a problem, should it? Verse 8. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? 
Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Ah, apparently it is a problem. Saul is threatened. Because David's stock is on the rise. And his not so much. Saul cares more about Saul than he does the things of God. Anybody in here ever been jealous of somebody else? All right, the rest of you are lying. You've all been jealous. Who likes the feeling of jealousy? Anybody like that? You know, one of the things that's hard when you're jealous is you've got to fake it. Oh, you won? I'm so happy for you. But inside you're seething. I wanted to win. Oh, your kid made the dean's list? That is great. My kid's flunking out. You know, it's just, just kidding. My son's sitting on there. Just kidding. But isn't that an awful feeling? As we understand God's call and God's acceptance of us and that our value is in him, well, then I don't have to view you as a threat, do I? I can, I can actually rejoice that, that you're doing well because I'm not competing with you. My, my worst's not in this competition. I've been accepted in Christ and, and I can actually rejoice. There's a freedom in that. Saul doesn't know any of that because he's been cut off from God and he's trying like crazy to hold on to his position. How bad does it get? Look at verse 10. Now it came about in the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. Now this evil spirit from God, what we talked about, best understanding is God pulls his Holy Spirit from God when he's finished with Saul as king in Saul. Sense of foreboding that this is not going to finish well. And so there's this melancholy, this, this overwhelming sense of dread that comes upon him. So he called David in to play the harp and it would soothe him. End of verse 10, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. So what does Saul do with that spear? Verse 11, he hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. That's what you do? Somebody who's trying to help you out? Try and run him through with a spear? Man, I'm not sure I want that kind of friend. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David. Why? For the Lord was with him. But had departed from Saul. That's the first of three times. We're going to see this phrase that the Lord was with David. And Saul's terrified. Because he knows the Lord has departed from him. And he's with David. Therefore Saul removed him, David, from his presence and appointed him as a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Verse 2, Saul taken David into his house. Now he wants him out. Get out of my sight. How's that going to work out for him? Verse 14, David was prospering in all his ways. Why? For the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. So, first he tries to pin David with a spear, then he sends him away. He's desperate, but he's going to get more desperate yet. 
we didn't have daughters. We had two sons. I can't imagine using my daughter as a chip, an emotional chip, to try and entangle an enemy. But that's exactly what Saul's going to do. Let's pick it up. Verse 18, then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife, only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. Why is Saul thinking this? My hand shall not be against him, but the, let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So I'm going to give you my daughter in marriage. You go out and fight, and my hope is you die. Is that a good way to treat your daughter? You use her as an emotional chip to get rid of your enemy. But David said, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? It's a social standing. David says, I don't, I don't fit here. So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given Adriel, the Mahathalite, for a wife. But fear not, Saul's got another daughter. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul this thing was agreeable to him. Oh, why are you agreeable to that, Saul? Verse 21, I will give her to him that she may come a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. See how far we can fall when we get desperate? See how far we can go when we're threatened? Yeah, I'm going to give you to my daughter in marriage with the hope that you die in battle. Boy, that's a loving father right there. Verse 22, then Saul commanded to the servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you. And you're lying there. And all the servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, is it a trivial thing in your sight? to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man in lightly esteem. Same deal. I, I don't fit. On the social ladder, I, I, I just don't fit here. Saul's ready. Verse 24, the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. And Saul says, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemy. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So what Saul's thinking is, I want evidence that you've taken out a hundred people. And surely in going to take a hundred, you'll fall in battle. That's, that's, that's what I want. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to pay a lot of money, but hey, David, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go. And I'm going to take ransom. I'm going to take payment in, 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 in the death of the Philistines. And surely in killing a hundred, you will fall. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law before the days had expired. David rose up and went, and he and his men struck down not a hundred, but two hundred men. Among the Philistines. Then David brought the foreskins and they gave him in full number to the king that it might become the king's son in law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. So you get that? I'm going to require evidence of 100 soldiers and hopefully you'll fall in that. David said, I'm going to do, I'm going to double that. Saul, I'm going to double that. 200. Saul thought he had him 100 and David shows up with 200. What's Saul's conclusion? When Saul saw and knew, here's our phrase again, 
that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus, Saul was David's enemy continually. And this will play out to the end of the book of 1 Samuel. We will, this is the start of Saul trying to kill David. And we will see David struggle and learn faith, and we will see God provide over the next 12 chapters. This is, scholars estimate, anywhere from a 10 to 13-year siege on David's life. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Three times we've seen the narrator say that the Lord was with David. And I would say David has received the favor of God in so many ways. Friendship with Jonathan, protection in battle, love of the king's daughter. See, we're asking this question, what happens when the Lord is with you? When the Lord's with you, the Lord's us. We're recipients of the Lord's multifaceted favor. We're recipients of the Lord's multifaceted favor. Now, this favor can look a lot of ways in a lot of different people's lives. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say if the Lord is with you, there's a chance, a good chance, that people who oppose God are going to be opposed to you. Remember, Saul has been cut off from God. He is out of the purposes of God. And he's real opposition to David. But that's not too much for the Lord when he shows us his favor. Well, how do we know the Lord is with us? Well, every person is born to be in a relationship with God. But we all rebel. We push back. We say, God, you go your way, I'll go mine. And that's what the Bible calls sin. The wrong words, wrong thoughts, wrong actions are, are, are significant. Something much more sinister. It's a hard attitude towards God saying, I'll do my own thing. That creates a separation between us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and lived the life you and I were supposed to live in complete submission to the Father, right up to the point he died on the cross. He rose again three days later. Why? To pay the penalty for your sin, your rebellion. Like Saul. Push back on God. I push back on God. Boy, if you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. That's what puts us in relationship with God. Right before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, so that I will come to you. But in fact, he was going to the cross. He was going to be crucified. He was going to resurrect. Forty days later, he was going to ascend into heaven. Physically, he was leaving them. But because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. The Holy Spirit is going to make me known. He's going to make me manifest in your life. The presence of God is real. God has made himself real in the Holy Spirit. And he makes Jesus alive in our lives. As that happens, we're beneficiaries of the multifaceted favor of God. Let me again highlight one of those benefits. If we will press into this God and understand how much he accepts us and loves us, well, the degree to we, which we do that frees us from jealousy and competition and comparison. 
the more I understand that my worth and my value is not in my performance, is not in getting the sales, but it's not in, it's not in, it's not in, it's not in, well, then I can not view you as a threat. I cannot view you as competition. I can be happy when you succeed. I can be happy when your kids succeed. I can be happy when your grandkids succeed. Because my worth isn't in that. You know, as a, as a pastor, that's, it comes home. You're called to minister, call of God. Well, how do I do when I see the hand of God on another church? Or I hear another speaker, another preacher who's really good, is it? Is that good? Because the kingdom of God's going forward, right? Or do I get competitive? I'm in process. But after 35 years, God has grown me up. But man, it's, it's a struggle, and it's kind of comes come back to what, are, Andy, are you using God's call to present your own agenda? Look at me. I think all of us have that in us, and are we satisfied, content with Jesus' call in our life? Before Jesus' public ministry, there was a, a forerunner. It was a, actually a cousin of Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist had a booming ministry. All the the Pharisees and the leaders were coming out, and they were kind of, whoa, who is this guy? Kind of freaked out. Um, but then Jesus came on the scene, and, and Jesus' ministry started growing, and, and John the uh, Baptist's ministry started, well, it started diminishing, it started shrinking, and his disciples were, were really wigged out about that. What are we going to do? And John the Baptist said this in John 3, verse 30. He... Jesus must increase, but I, John the Baptist, must decrease. That's a man who's called. That's a man who's, I'm serving God. And there was a time my ministry was blowing up in the big, greatest sense, but now it's starting to, but that's okay. Because Jesus has come on the scene. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is moving. That we could step into that. Jesus must increase, that I must decrease. One of the things that always kind of moves me when I see it on TV is this uh, event called uh, Make-A-Wish. And it's for kids, young kids who have illnesses that are either terminal or, or, or very disabling. They will desire to meet a, an athletic star, the, their childhood hero, if you will. And this one particular was uh, Steph Curry, who plays for the Golden State Warriors. And this little boy just wanted to meet Steph. Well, if you've ever been to an NBA arena, I mean, you, you don't, don't think about getting on the floor. I mean, there is security there that will keep you off the floor. And, and going in the locker room, you know, they, they got security there. But, but this little boy is with Steph Curry on, on this night. And he just walks right into the locker room. Well, what's that? Well, Steph was with him. And, and not only does he, does he walk in the locker room, but he, he walks right on, on the floor, and they're, they're in the shoot-around. And, and he goes up, and he, you're going up and meeting players, and, hey, how are you? Well, well, what's that? Nobody asked a question. Steph said, he's with me. Because Steph's with him, well, well he gets access to stuff he wouldn't ever otherwise do. Do you understand in a spiritual sense that when Jesus is with us, we get 
access to fullness of life, abundance of life that we otherwise wouldn't get. He gives us access to the fullness of God. What's the value of the Lord being with us? We're recipients of the multifaceted favor of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for Jesus who does show us and bring us your favor. Lord, um, thanks that you have made yourself known. You have made the fullness of life known in Jesus. And thanks for the example of, of David and, and the, even the example of Saul. We can learn what to do and, and what not to do. Spirit of God, would you make yourself known that, that we might experience this favor? And yes, even be released from the trap of comparison and competing and being threatened by others. Lord, that we could enter fullness of life with you and with other people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.